Have you ever heard someone say something like, "Don't give your kids soy milk; it might give them peanut allergies," or "Eating lots of blueberries will reduce your risk of Alzheimer's dementia," or intubation during the first 15 minutes of an adult in-hospital cardiac arrest is associated with decreased survival to hospital discharge? Wow, that escalated quickly. What? It was published in JAMA this year. I'm just saying. You kind of killed the lighthearted mood a bit. <laughs> Maybe. While I can't attest to the accuracy of the first two statements, all three have something in common. They're all harm foreground questions. Bingo. Remember, y'all, harm foreground questions ask, does a particular variable like a disease, behavior, drug, or intervention cause or sometimes reduce harm in a given patient population? So, does soy milk cause harm in the form of peanut allergies? Or do blueberries reduce the risk of Alzheimer's dementia? Or does tracheal intubation in the first 15 minutes of adult in-hospital cardiac arrest improve survival to discharge? It doesn't. Let's save that one for another episode. All right, but I'm still going to link the article in the show notes. All right, y'all, so this episode is all about harm. But before we start, let's get some spaced repetition of some of our previous concepts. Remember that foreground questions are all about that PICO. Therapy foreground questions ask if a given intervention has a meaningful effect on patient outcomes. Critical appraisal is the act of absolutely trashing an article. Bias is when something external or inherent to the system introduces changes to the results that are not actually related. Remember that risk is a statistical measurement of an event occurring as a result of exposure to some variable. One of the major ways that we measure risk is the relative risk. The number needed to treat is the number of patients you would need to treat with the studied intervention to prevent one adverse event. Remember, the number needed to harm is the exact opposite, how many patients you would have to treat to harm one. And finally, the confidence interval is basically a range of values that is likely to encompass the true value. Remember that to improve the precision of your confidence interval, you simply need to increase your sample size. Wow, Jared, that was pretty good. Thanks. And if any of those things don't ring a bell, head on back and listen to episodes one and two before moving on. So back to harm? Yes. Does a particular exposure to a particular variable cause harm or reduce harm in a given patient population? That sounds awfully like the therapy PICO question. It's very similar, except in this case, we're not randomizing the study population into treatment and control. We're studying patients who happen to be exposed to a given variable, and then we're watching who's harmed and who isn't. This is known as an observational study, and there are many different types. We'll talk about them. The problem is, without randomization, how do we know the outcome is a result of our study variable and not something random? That's a great question. Let's take our blueberry example. Is it blueberries that reduce the risk of Alzheimer's dementia? Or are people who eat blueberries more likely to lead a healthy and active lifestyle that reduces the risk of Alzheimer's dementia? It would obviously be far more accurate to run an RCT, but that means that you'd have to randomize children into blueberry eaters and non-blueberry eaters. Then you would follow them for 80 years and see who develops Alzheimer's and who doesn't. Sign me up for that. I'll be in the blueberry eater arm. They're delicious. Yeah, yeah, but it's random. You don't get to choose. Yeah, that seems 
little impractical for study design. So I think we're getting at an important point here. RCTs are without a doubt a higher quality form of evidence than observational studies. But there are many scenarios in which an RCT is simply impractical, unethical, or impossible to perform. Or maybe we're trying to gather evidence to support funding for an RCT. Sometimes observational studies are the best we're going to get. You want a blueberry? Oh, I sure do. Thanks. It is just so delicious. So delicious. Let's focus. We've got a lot more to cover. All right. There are four main reasons why you would prefer an observational study over an RCT. You might want to know if smoking increases your risk of developing lung cancer. It wouldn't be ethical to take 1,000 patients, make 500 of them smoke for five years, and then study lung cancer rates between the two groups. It doesn't sound as fun as blueberries. No, it's not as fun. But we can observe the risk of developing lung cancer in people who already smoke and compare it to non-smokers. Would an RCT be better evidence? Yes, of course. But this is the best we have while still using ethical research methods. Next, observational studies are better at detecting rare or serious adverse events relative to RCTs. RCTs can detect adverse event rates as low as 1%, but you might miss adverse events less than that. To detect differences this small, you often need huge sample sizes and lengthy follow-up times. It would be logistically difficult, expensive, or even impossible to power your study to that magnitude, even with a systematic review. So instead, we observe. One great example is the risk of TTP with clopridogrel. This risk was never detected in a large pre-market RCT but was discovered in a late aftermarket observational study. This article is included in the show notes. The third reason you might prefer an observational study over an RCT is the duration of follow-up. Sometimes you might be interested in knowing effect years or even decades after exposure. Like the risk of developing adult non-ischemic cardiomyopathy after exposure to chemotherapy in childhood. Right. It really wouldn't be feasible to run an RCT for 20, 30, or 40 years, so we use observational studies. Lastly, sometimes there just isn't an RCT available for your clinical question. Observational studies are easier to perform than RCTs, so it's much more likely you'll find an observational study that addresses a given clinical question. Further, observational studies can support the funding and development of an RCT. If an observational study reports a potential correlation between a variable and an outcome, researchers may decide to randomize and really drill down on whether or not the correlation is actually causative. In summary, observational studies are preferred over RCTs if it's unethical or logistically difficult to run an RCT, if we are looking for rare adverse events, or if an RCT simply isn't available. Couldn't have said it better myself. Let's move on to how these studies are conducted. Observational study is sort of a catch-all term for taking a group of people and staring at them. Mm, that's called being a creep. You know what I meant. <laughs> yeah. An observational study essentially takes a group of people and determines who had an outcome, like Alzheimer's dementia, and who didn't. Then, it determines who in those groups had an exposure, like eating blueberries, and who didn't. From here, we can plot our 2x2 two two table and calculate various measures of risk. Check out the show notes for a nice example of that 2x2 two two table that we can't describe on an audio medium. There are four major observational study designs we're going to talk about in this episode. The four C's. Ha, I actually never noticed that. The four study designs are cohort studies, case control studies, cross-sectional studies, and case series or case reports. We're going to briefly define each one. 
The first type is a cohort study, and these can be prospective or retrospective. In a prospective cohort study, the investigator selects a cohort of people, some of whom have been exposed to whatever agent or intervention you're studying, and some who haven't. This cohort is then followed for a defined period of time, and outcomes are monitored. The advantage of a prospective cohort study is that the investigators have the power to control how patients are monitored and followed. The obvious disadvantage is that these can be pretty labor-intensive. Right, and it can take a long time to get your data. It makes me think of the Harvard study of adult development. The what? It's the longest-running study on adult life to date. They followed over 700 men for 78 years, and now they're still going strong. They just started studying the children of the original participants. So what's the big take-home from that study? Well, there's been over 100 papers published from the data so far, but the big take-home has been that good relationships keep us happier, healthier, and better able to manage stress. All right, I'm going to go. You take the podcast from here. I'm going to go call my friends and hang out. Oh, you can't just leave me. Oh, I, I need you too. You're not my friend. <laughs> In a retrospective cohort study, the exposures and outcomes have already happened. The data has already been collected. Now, these studies are much easier to conduct. You really just need to analyze pre-existing data. But the disadvantage of a retrospective cohort study is that you don't have any control over how the data is collected or if it's relevant to your clinical question. Next up, case control studies. Now, these are always retrospective in design, meaning the exposures and the outcomes have already occurred. In a case control study, investigators split up participants into two groups. Number one, those who have the outcome. These are going to be our cases. And number two, those without the outcome. These are going to be our controls. From here, investigators then ascertain whether or not an exposure occurred. For example, let's say we wanted to develop a case control study on the risk of developing lung cancer among people who smoke cigarettes. We might enroll 100 people with lung cancer. These would be our cases. After this, we would find 100 people with similar baseline characteristics, but without lung cancer. These would be our controls. And then starts the digging. We'd start figuring out things like how much cigarette smoke our cases and controls were exposed to, or if they were exposed to any other harmful substances, among other things. Much like a retrospective cohort study, these are easier to perform, but sometimes we have limited control over data collection. We'll briefly mention the last two observational study types, cross-sectional studies and case series or case reports. Cross-sectional studies are almost exactly like prospective cohort studies. They split up participants into exposed and unexposed, but the major difference is that they don't follow patients over time. So instead of splitting up into exposed, unexposed, and asking, will you develop the outcome, cross-sectional studies split up into exposed, unexposed, and ask, do you have the outcome? Yeah, it's really just taking a big cross-section of the data at that specific point in time. Moving into our last study design, the case series or case report. This is basically just a description of what happened to a single patient. That's a case report. Or multiple patients. That's a case series. I suppose there's a comparison if you were to run a before-after study, but those can be fraught with error too. Now, all of these study designs have their advantages and disadvantages, but I do think it's important to have a general understanding of how these studies are conducted. I agree, but I think it's even more important to understand how these studies can introduce bias into our data. The major forms of observational bias that come to mind are recall bias, surveillance bias, confounding, and of course, the pitfalls of correlation versus causation. John, can you define recall bias for us? Uh, what? 
Uh, I can't remember what that is. Eh, very funny. Recall bias typically occurs in retrospective studies when we ask participants to recall pieces of information, like how much did you smoke for the past 30 years? Hindsight is definitely not 2020. The human brain often believes what it wants about the past. Definitely check out the show notes for a segment on false memories where participants were shown fake pictures of themselves from the past, and many of them remembered the instance even though it never happened. The picture wasn't real. Next up is surveillance bias. I'm watching you. What did I tell you about scaring our listeners? That I shouldn't do it. (laughs) On to surveillance bias. (laughs) Yes. Surveillance bias is basically the idea of the more you look, the more you find. Some patients might be followed up more closely or have more diagnostic tests ordered than others, which would falsely elevate our risk. Right. So in our example of lung cancer, maybe non-smokers would have higher rates of lung cancer if only we had worked them up as extensively as we did our smokers. Next up, confounding variables. This one's pretty easy. It's the idea that in an observational study, the observed differences between groups may be attributed to more than just one variable we're studying. Like our blueberry example, reduced risk of Alzheimer's might be related to blueberry consumption, or it might be confounded by other healthy lifestyle choices or genetic predispositions. Finally, we're going to talk about correlation versus causation. If you remember nothing else, remember that correlation does not equal causation. John, did you know that an increase in ice cream sales causes an increase in violent crime? You've got to be kidding me. Nope, reading right here. Ice cream sales between July and September correlate with violent crimes committed across America. We just got done saying that correlation doesn't. I bet doesn't. people get mad when it melts. Jer. Or maybe they were just served the wrong flavor. Jer. I just don't understand how ice cream could make anyone angry. <sighs> so for our listeners out there, Jeremy has fallen prey to a classic statistical error thinking that correlation equals causation. Just because two things are correlated, like ice cream and violent crime, doesn't mean that one causes the other. We have to be careful to think about all possible explanations for correlations, and when in doubt, seek out more data. Hey, John, you know what time it is? Is it sizzle time? You know it. Sizzle. Our first sizzle topic is regression analysis. It's a form of statistical modeling that aims to estimate the relationship between variables, specifically the relationship between a dependent and an independent variable. Remember that the independent variable is also known as the exposure, as far as the study is concerned. Nothing really caused it. It's independent. The dependent variable is also known as the outcome. The study question often surrounds to what degree the independent variable, like smoking, influences the dependent variable, like lung cancer. We typically generate these by plotting out our independent and dependent variables on the x and y axes respectively, and we generate a line of best fit, which can be linear or nonlinear. Check out the show notes. The short of it is that regression analysis is really all about predicting relationships. Are my variables related at all? Said differently, regression analyses are great at eliciting correlation, but remember we have to be cautious to not immediately assume causation. Well, I think we got about 10 seconds left. That's pretty good. Thanks. Now on to the p-value. Stephen Goodman called this the most ubiquitous, yet at the same time the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and occasionally miscalculated index of all biomed research. You think you can cover that in 60 seconds? I think so. Before we dive into the p-value, we have to refresh ourselves on the null hypothesis. Remember, the null hypothesis is the assumption that there is no difference between our two study groups. The p-value represents the probability of obtaining a result greater than or equal to the result observed in our data, assuming the null hypothesis is true. 
is calculated using the Fisher exact test. We typically accept a p-value less than 0.05 or 5% as statistically significant. So let's say we did a study and found that lung cancer rates were 30% higher in smokers versus non-smokers with a p-value of 0.049. What this means is that assuming there is no difference between our two study groups, assuming the null hypothesis is true, the probability of repeating the study and finding a similar or greater result is 4.9%, relatively unlikely. So we call this statistically significant. Note that a p-value is not telling us whether our data is true or false. It's just a tool. The entirety of the study has to be considered to tell us if it's true or false. Check out the show notes for more information and a fun video on the p -value. Well, I think you were two seconds over that time. Oh, hopefully our listeners can forgive a 62-second summary of the p-value. I actually had my stopwatch out. <laughs> All right, my turn. Fragility index. All right, you ready? <sighs> Big breath. All right. The fragility index and the p-value interestingly go hand in hand. The fragility index is the number of patients who would have to change from event to non-event or vice versa to make a study result statistically insignificant. It's derived by manipulating the data, theoretically moving patients over from the non-event, like not lung cancer, to the event group, like lung cancer, until the p-value exceeds 0.05. The number of patients required to become statistically insignificant is the fragility index. The smaller the fragility index, the more fragile a trial's outcome and the more easily statistical significance as determined by a p-value can be overturned. Maybe we can change a calculation here, correct for age there, Fragile trials can be affected by these minor changes. Much of our published literature in critical care medicine is based on statistically fragile data. Perhaps statistical significance goes far beyond a p-value less than 0 0.05. Wow. Is that true? Journal Club. More than just p-value. <laughs> is that our new tagline? All right, y'all. Let's summarize. Remember that harm foreground questions ask whether or not a particular exposure to a particular variable will cause harm in a given patient population. The four study designs that we use for observational harm PICO questions are cohort studies, case control studies, cross-sectional studies, and case series. Remember that they're all at risk for bias, and the biggest ones that we like to think about are recall bias, when patients are unable to remember information accurately, surveillance bias, the more you look, the more you find, confounding variables, whether something else is contributing to what you're finding, and of course, correlation is not always causation. Check out the show notes for more information on regression analysis, p-values, and the fragility index. Hope this was helpful. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.